The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. If you were to think about the proper atmosphere of a church, what comes to mind? How would you describe the feel of a place in a sentence or two? Or the feel of the people in that place in a sentence or two? What would you say? Or maybe if you had to limit it, what would you say in a word or two? Proper atmosphere of a church. I, I hope that words like holy and righteous and Godward would come to mind. I hope so. Christ-centered, gospel-centered. I hope that that what kind of oozes out of our pores is what God has done in Christ, the gospel, that it's, it's, it's what we're about, what we're like. Maybe ideas like biblical, obedient, kind, loving, gracious. All those things I would not argue with, I hope they characterize us, and I hope we are growing such that they continue to increasingly characterize us, that we're known like that more and more. But I want to add in one more word. Joy, the proper atmosphere of a church, of the people of God, of an individual Christian, should be joy. Not instead of all those other words, those those other words are important and good, Not, not instead of them, it's not joyful instead of being generous, it's joy in and through and over all those other traits, such that that it gives life to them, gives, gives sweet depth to them, and gives some Christian uniqueness to those words. It's generosity with joy. It's obedience in joy. It's, it's holiness that's joyful in, through, over all those. The, the atmosphere of all those words is to be joy. It's going to be expressed differently. We're all kinds of different people. We all have different different personalities, we're going to be in different settings, so sometimes it's going to look very smiley and very bubbly, and other times it will look quiet and reflective, depending on who we are and how we are. But joy is the proper atmosphere of a Christian family, of a Christian people, sweetly, thankfully, because that's what we all want. We all all want joy. And that's what we're supposed to be, too. That's what brings us to our passage for today. We've been working through the first chapter of the book of 2 Corinthians. And as we've done so, we've seen Paul defending his character and his ministry to the church there. An influential minority in the congregation there at Corinth that did not like Paul, did not respect him, did not want to follow him as God's authority over them. And that minority was trying to drive in a wedge between Paul and the majority of the church, the the bulk of the body. And they were doing so by attacking him and resisting him and particularly addressing him as a two-faced deceiver, calling him kind of fickle, a people pleaser in his dealings with them, particularly related to his, his concepts and his plans for traveling to visit with them, to be among them, to live with them. He changed his plans back and forth. And as we saw last week, and and we'll see again today, that did happen. 
but not for sinful reasons. He had good reasons to do so, reasons that were born from his concern to do them wise, careful, good, and his concern to honor God in the process. His concern to wisely, carefully, in an honoring way, produce joy in the church. That's what Paul was trying to do there. And as we look at the text today, we're going to see something of how he did that and what he was up to, and that'll then indirectly inform us what we should be doing and what we should be up to here, what we should be after and how. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage. I'm going to begin in verse 23 of chapter 1 and continue down through chapter 2, verse 4. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Second Corinthians, end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. So make two observations from that passage. Here's the first. God wants a faithful people full of joy. God wants a faithful people. And notice, God wants, which is really good news. God wants this, which means that God's going to be behind working it out, that God's going to be encouraging it, that God's going to be moving us towards it. Such a desirable thing. He wants, he wants a faithful people full of joy. Verse 23, Paul picks up his defense of his decision about travel, calling on the faithful God he was just talking about. And he says something very strong, the basic equivalent of, may God strike me down if this is not true. I changed my mind and I decided not to come to see you again in Corinth in order to spare you. By which he means something in particular. We've got to piece together some of the, the context that we find in chapter 2, some of which we'll see this, this week still and some of which comes up next week. But he's got something particular in mind. Basically what was going on, the last time Paul visited some particular man, probably from the group that did not respect and follow Paul, did something to attack and hurt him. We don't know who, we don't know what, but when Paul left the church to deal with it, they didn't. The majority of the church was intimidated by the influential minority and did nothing to correct the problem. They just let it stand, they just let it go on, and in so doing, they became complicit in the matter. And Paul knew that as an apostle, if he were to come back to Corinth in that current state, he would have to confront the issue, correct the church, 
and command the church to discipline this man. And nothing about that would be pleasant. So for their sake, to spare them of that situation, he decided not to come, but instead to address it in writing. As he says, he wrote as he did. He wrote them a letter. Now, this is sort of like a parent. You know that Junior's upstairs not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And instead of sneaking up and catching him in the act, knowing that's going to create a really awkward situation, you're going to have to address it, have to discipline it, you instead give a little warning and you call up, how's it going up there? I'll be up in a few minutes to see. Trying to give him a chance to correct it before you come. You're not skipping the issue. You're just taking a different tack. That's what Paul did. He didn't come, but instead wrote so as to spare them. But he realizes, as soon as he says that, he realizes that any talk of sparing them might sound bad, might sound a little bit like a power trip or some sort of an indirect, arrogant threat. I was going to come put the hurt on you and show you who's boss, but I went easy on you. I spared you. That might sound bad. That's not what I mean. I'm not lording over your faith, he says. You, end of the verse, you stand firm in your faith. In other words, you church, you, you are a faithful people. You do have faith and you do stand before the Lord. That's, that's a settled, resolved position of security. You stand, you don't fall, before God all by yourself because of your faith. I don't make you stand and I can't tear you down. I'm not Lord. The church only has one Lord, the Lord. And ministers exist for the people, humbly serving beneath them to lift them up like Jesus, God who became man, who became a servant. I'm not your Lord, I'm just your servant. We all are. Me, Paul says, along with Silas and Timothy, who are included here, we can tell because technically the verse, verse 24 uses the, the word co-laborer. He's got co-laborers, this team that came along with him. Now certainly the Corinthian church is also involved. They're not just passive receiving what, what these ministers do, but the emphasis in the verse is falling on the ministry team, Paul and company. And the goal of this ministry team, a team of servants here on God's errand, working among the Corinthians for what? For their joy. That's really interesting. We've kind of been working through as we've come down to the point. Sit on that for a second. This is a church... 1 Corinthians shows us all kinds of difficulties. He just acknowledged that he had to write him another letter to confront a difficulty. They've got this great divide in their church, a majority that's weak and a minority that's influential. You might think, for your obedience, for your holiness, for your righteousness, for your, your godwardness, for your evangelistic effectiveness, perhaps, if he's got a ministry mindset, for your submission to God. Something like that might seem perhaps a little more 
necessary or obvious, but what he says is that we were among you for your joy. Our job, our assignment to make you happy. And I mean really, truly, deeply, profoundly happy. God sent Paul and company. Think about this and see in it the kindness of God. God sent his ministers to Corinth to work there and bring the Corinthians, yes, to faith, but more than that, to bring the Corinthians to joy, to help them experience something so sweet in their lives, something that is, that is fundamentally desirable to all people, joy. This is a fascinating way to think about the goal of ministry and a fascinating way to think about the, the desired proper atmosphere of a church. The goal is joy. And it's not just stated there, it's repeated down in chapter 2. We'll look at the details of chapter 2, and it's, chapter 2 is confusing. It goes around like this a little bit. But if you just kind of glance through it, you see that Paul wants the church to make him glad in verse 2. And in verse 3, he says that actually they should be a people who make him to rejoice. Still got joy on the mind here. And he says also then in verse 3 that, that the, the goal of the whole process that he chose, that he would write this letter because he had confidence in them. What does that mean? Well, I think what he means there is that he had a confidence that they are an actual church, that they stand in faith, that the Spirit of God lives in them. And so they will be moved by God. They will be drawn along after God's word and they will turn, and Paul will hear about that, and then he will rejoice in what happened, and then his joy will be their joy. It'll be shared. There's a lot there, but follow all that through. My joy would be the joy of you all. The goal is a minister joyed, if I make that a verb, joyed by the church, who then joys the church. God's designed ministry model. A joyful minister sent by God into the midst of a congregation of faithful people for their joy. Which is pretty similar to a comforted minister sent by God into the congregation for their comfort which we also saw in this chapter, do you remember? Same idea. We're talking about similar things here. Whether it's God sending the comforted minister for their comfort or God sending the joyed minister for their joy, we're on similar footing here. But I think that, for me at least, the word joy, putting that kind of like front and center and looking at that word, that puts a really different spin on it. It drastically impacts how I think about what I'm aiming at in my own life and in the life of a church. What our atmosphere should be. Profoundly, persistently rejoicing. That's interesting. 
God's goal for his people is that in all of life, no matter what the situation, and, and realize this is, this is God's goal for us. <laughs> There's a lot of glory for God in this. That if you think, I didn't mean to say this, but this is a little personal testimony here. One of the first like big clicks in my life when I realized, you've got to be kidding me. The Christian life is not set aside joy and do what you're supposed to. I thought that's what Christianity was. My whole growing up years, which is why I wasn't a Christian, that there's, there's joy, there's desirable things, there's fun, there's pleasure, there's good stuff in life, and at some point, some people think, like, never mind that, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And I realized for the first time, somebody explained this to me and showed me in the scriptures that no, actually, what you're supposed to do is joy. This is what God is saying we are supposed to do, supposed to be. So, so hear this. No matter what situation we're in in life, whatever your circumstance, whether you're sitting in the middle of abundance or when the fields and the cupboards are bare and the cattle pens and the bank accounts empty. Either way. Whether you are at the height of power and health and influence or you are racked by disease and weakness and facing the inevitable decline of age. Age has a way of making everybody weak. Whatever the situation, whatever your lot in life, whatever the surrounding circumstances, you as a Christian and us as a Christian family, a people, are to be experiencing a hope that leaves you positive and bright. A smile on your face and a thank you in your heart. Now, we, we're going to express that differently. There are some of us that never smile. I hope you smile in your heart. People are different. Some of the difference is not good. Because some of our non-smiling is a suppression of something and a, and a lack of focus. But people are different, certainly. What I mean when I say a smile on your face is that, is that you are smiling, that you've got a heart that's happy. Bright and positive, not because you are deluded and blind as to what's actually going on, but because you actually see and understand what's going on. That you have eyes that look past this life. Would you look past, Christian people of God, look past this life and see the God who raises the dead after this life. In him you stand by faith and not by feeble works that you sometimes perform and sometimes don't. You don't stand on your own righteousness. You stand by faith in his righteousness. And all then, all God's promises, this is from last week if you were here, all God's promises are for you, yes. Because you stand in Christ by faith. I mentioned Psalm 144 last week. This week, take up Psalm 145. You can find it everywhere in the Bible. Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. Scriptures. Take Psalm 145. Spend your Sabbath rest today in Psalm 145. 
And do what the psalm says. Meditate on the wondrous works of God. Behold the splendor of His majesty. See Him as gracious and merciful towards you and slow to anger. See Him as the God who hears you and is near to you when you cry, who acts to intervene to save and to deliver you. Those are the promises of God for you in Psalm 145. And they are yes to you because you stand by faith in Christ. Lift up your eyes and see that whether you've got no money in the bank account, you've got all of that, and that's glory. That's true. And all of that was bought for you by the God who wants you in joy. All of that was bought for you by that God who sent his son to grief so that you could have everything. Christian, you are the most blessed person, the most blessed people anywhere ever. You're in Christ. And all the promises of God are yours. May God open your eyes to the truth and see that this life right here, right now, is not what you are hooked to. This ship is sinking. Now, the reason that we can rejoice now on the sinking ship is not just because of the pleasures, the, the blessings that God has given us on the ship. They are in the things that are to come. So lift up your eyes and see the things that are to come. Evidenced sometimes, yes, in great blessings here and now. But in the absence of those blessings, what I'm saying is that the attitude of heart that leaves you with a settled atmosphere of joy is I am a Christian. I am forgiven of my sin. I am made an heir with Christ. I have a home that is inviolate. I have an inheritance that is, that is unspoiled and unspoilable. You have everything. And on top of that, you have communion with God Almighty himself. Right now, by the Spirit who lives in you, a guarantee of what is to come. Vast presence of the divine. So you got cancer and you're broke. Who gives a rip? Really? Not that having cancer and being broke is actually not important. But who gives a rip, really? You see, God has done something marvelous to give you solid joy. That attitude of heart, that's the bulletproof life. The bulletproof heart. Not because you plated it over with six inches of steel. You're an island and nothing can touch you. No, you can let everything in. And everyone in and all the trouble they'll bring. But you have a, a heart that's anchored on something else. And you have a joy that is unspeakable, full of glory. And you stand in it. You, you sink in the middle of grace. And that rejoices your heart. That's what God has made for us. Do you know that life? Do you know it? I probably could have described it better in different ways. There's certainly things I forgot to say. You get what I'm talking about. Do you get it? 
Now, perhaps you don't get it because you're not a Christian. And there are probably people who will hear this, who are hearing this, and, and you need to understand that everything that I've been talking about, this came up last week, is all like a gigantic funnel poured into Jesus and to everybody who is in Jesus and only to those people who are in Jesus. You have to be a Christian. So it's possible you don't get what I'm talking about because you're not a Christian. And then I hope, oh, I hope that you see, may God open your eyes to see this thing that he opened me, my eyes to see sometime back, that the call of God is not set aside what's delightful and enjoyable and do what you're supposed to do. That is not the call of God to you. The call of God is come find your joy, and I mean really find it. A deep and abiding, unshakable joy offered by God and secured for you by his son, if you would trust him. He was sorrowed and despised and rejected and through many tears bore grief. So that you could know full joy, relationship with God, forgiven in Jesus that's, that's the call to you. That's the offer to you. So take it. The Christian, I, most of us who will hear this are, are actual people who stand in faith. Christians. And everything that I was just describing there, is, is that you? Is that your family? Is that our church family? What do you think? I think probably if we're honest, at least if I'm honest, oftentimes I'd have to say not quite. Not always, sometimes yes. Sweetly so, but not always. Not often enough. This is, God want, this is what God wants for us, but it does not come automatically, which is going to lead us to the second point. But we have to pause here right at the, at the cusp of the second point and ask, do you want that? Or are you just content with where you are? Sometimes, unfortunately, Christians... Standing in faith, understanding the truth, say, I'm okay with that. That's, that's enough. Don't. Don't. There's something offered here to you that's actually a life of newness. But it doesn't come automatically. We have to work for it, which is the second point. We must work for this joy that should so sweetly characterize us. We must work for this joy that should so sweetly characterize us. This is, in fact, what the text says. 
Paul and his team are co-laborers for the joy of the church. And, uh, there's, there's labor involved. That's what it says. And in fact, the text itself gives us a window into what some of the different pieces of that labor might look like in, in this particular situation. So we see, we see some details here, some specific details for Paul in this specific situation, but it gives us kind of a window or maybe a template as to what it, it might look like to work for joy. So let's see what he did. He worked for joy by wisely avoiding unnecessary grief. He realized that if he came... It was just going to be like striking something hard. It would, it would lead to friction. There would be a grieving, not delighting. He'd leave them aggravated, and that would not produce joy in them. It wouldn't produce joy in him, as he talked about in verses 2 and 3. The relationship would be broken. And he wanted to avoid that if he could. Sometimes you can't. But he wanted to avoid that breaking of relationship, that friction, if he could. And so he tactfully, tactically thinks and writes and stays away, confident that it would accomplish what he needed it to accomplish. This is the part I already mentioned here. It gets a little bit confusing in the middle of verse 3, but he wrote as he did. He, he wrote this difficult letter to them, sure that it would produce the desired response because of the Spirit of God living in them. So he's very tactful and tactical, avoiding unhelpful and unnecessary grief and telling them in particular about his love for them. Verse 4. So he avoided the grief of, of coming. He avoided the grief even of condemning them. Or judging them. The only, the only reason there's a problem is because the Corinthians are in the wrong. But he doesn't actually point that out and kind of bust them on that. But instead says, I'm confident in you, and my heart is my heart is really for you. I mean, the words of anguish and tears, he wants to talk about his abundant love that he has for them. He's, he's laying out, not I'm angry with you and what the are you doing, but in fact, my heart aches for you, and I love you deeply. Clearly communicates his heart and tells them how he feels about them. But we need to notice something about that. That's all circling around something else that's pretty important and can't be missed. All that I just said there could be captured under the word manner. How to. I'm going to tactically, tactfully avoid additional grief and I'm not going to condemn them and judge them and I'm going to tell them how much I love them and how much I'm aggrieved over them and how confident I am that they're actually Christians who stand in faith. That's all manner of how he's going to be. But manner to do what? Address the sin in the church. That's why he had to have contact with them in the first place. He had to address sin in the church for their joy. So he, 
carefully thinks about how he can best address sin in the church to bring them to joy. And the answer is not, let's just not talk about that. I'll avoid stirring the pot. I'll tell them how much I love them no matter what and then leave it at that. With sin controlling them and them walking with the world in the flesh, that's going to be a whole lot easier. They're probably going to like me a lot more. There's going to be no confrontation. The relationship will be kept just sweet and and everything will look great. No. No. not what he does. Being loved and being left alone in their sin would not be loving because it would not be for their joy. They needed to be drawn away from their sin. Drawn away from worldliness and away from hoping in the things of the world and drawn towards God to trust him actively and to hope in him persistently because that kind of communion with God, that dependence on God, that's the life of joy. And you can't have that while embracing sin. You can't hold on to God while also holding on to sin. And so Paul had to address that in them. He chose to write, but he chose to write and address the problem. Now, that's what he did. That's what we see there in that text. And probably the particular hows and whys would change with the next congregation or change next year, change with a different problem. So this isn't like it's a, it's a hard model. But what we see as we look at this is we say something here alerts me to the fact that it is not enough to just think about and understand and desire an atmosphere of joy in the church. That's what should be. That's what we want. That would be great. It has to be worked for. It it has to be something that is intentionally pursued. Some combination, in some way, the, 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 the ratios and the manner would change, but some combination of I avoid unnecessary trouble, I avoid unnecessary grief, and I communicate in, I I have and I communicate in love, and I address anything that would separate people from God. Avoiding unnecessary grief, loving and communicating in love to address anything that would separate people from God. That's the work. Different combinations of those things in different situations according to need. But that's the work that we must engage in if the desired goal of joy is to color us. And if we're honest, we often fail at the work. I sure do. This is perplexing to me because as I said a long time ago, one of the first things that brought me to faith in Christ was this discovery that it, there was no separation between joy and pursuing God. So I have known, I have known for a long time about the centrality of joy in the Christian life. And, 
the centrality of joy in a Christian people. I have, I have known about that for a long time. And all through that long time, just me being honest here, I have consistently struggled to actually walk in joy. I, one time I was preaching about this some, some time back, and a person once said to me, I love that message, but you might try smiling while you talk about joy. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, I'm preaching, so it's hard to preach while you're smiling, but I'm hearing the point, and I think I can preach about joy better than I can be joyed. And that's perplexing to me. I, I know a lot about this, but, but this point right here, the second point, this is, this is the key. This is the problem for me. Not the first point. The second point is the problem for me. I forget to work for it, to fight for it. And I think many of us do. The reason I paused at the kind of the cusp of coming into this point is that I think a bunch of us, we hear that and we kind of nod and we say, yeah, but we really think like the, the kind of Christian life I'm living right now, eh, it's okay. Well, maybe it isn't. Maybe what you're doing is you're, you're looking at, first point, a life, an atmosphere of, of joy and you're saying, Ah, that would be, that'd be great, I suppose. I'm just not that kind of a person. Hold on. Now, ways we express it are different. We're all that kind of person. We're all chasing joy everywhere. You just think it's found here or here or here or here or here. Nobody doesn't chase joy. We express it differently. And sometimes we forget we don't really want to do the work to pursue it properly in God. So, is that you? It would be helpful, if that's you, it would be helpful to observe yourself first and say, I don't think I know that that life of joy, what are your tendencies? Where, where do you kind of slip off the road? Where, where do you drift from Godward joy into mundane? Suppose you have a tendency for complaining. <laughs> I know a man who's like this. Suppose you have a tendency for complaining, either out loud or in your head. And complaining and its close cousin disappointment and despairing is pretty common for you. Drive down the road thinking and your mind drifts off towards critique Complaint, disappointment, despair. And if you think very much and if you think very carefully, there's a lot in the world to be disappointed about, frustrated over, and despairing of. If you've paid attention to the world, there's a lot to critique. 
Maybe you've got that tendency. I know somebody who does. And you kind of drive down the road drifting. Well, that, that's the first helpful piece is to notice, this is how I work. I, I go this way. I drift into complaint. So you're a Christian, and you've got two choices right there to say, okay, I guess that's just me. That's how I am. Or, or maybe to say, okay, that's not right. Lord, please forgive me. Or you could say, hold on. An atmosphere of joy. God is meaning to be at work in my life for my joy. This ain't it. What would be? Here's the work then. What, what, what would be as I'm driving down the road drifting towards complaint, towards critique, towards disappointment, towards despair, towards frustration? What would be? Here's the work, Christian. I commend this to you and I pray that this would, this would seem important to you and that you would actually take up this work, that you would grab hold of that thought, take it captive and say, wait a minute. Not, that's not happening. Not, God will surely change that. But instead, God has done more than that. God has more for me than that. God has with that everything, including that, everything for me in Christ. This is the work, to grab that, take it captive, and submit it to Christ. Drive out of your mind everything that separates you from God. And remind yourself, hold on, I have much, much, much to be thankful for. Spirit of God, help me, not just forgive me of my sin. I want to repent of the sin of complaint, the sin that's often pride is associated with that. I want to confess that and repent of that. But Spirit of God, would you open my eyes to behold the splendor of God? Would you open my eyes to show me my inheritance that he, that he has won for me and kept for me in Christ? Would you open my eyes to see the depth, the breadth, the beauty of the blessings that he has for me in Christ? Open my eyes, Spirit of God. Fight for that in the car where you're driving on the street, drifting. Or don't and be miserable. Either way. But Christian, this kind of work of taking yourself, taking the thoughts that naturally come captive and submitting them to Christ in whom all the promises of God are yes for you. That's the work that will produce joy in your heart, and that's also the work that will produce joy in your friends and family around you if you'll take up that work to help them do the very same. It'll produce in you a mind that sees all the troubles, a mind that sees all the, the, the struggles, the, yeah, and also a mind that sees all the glories and all the good and all the, the certainty that God is reigning over all of it to work out his perfect will and in the end, glory. And what will rise up in you and in the friend you're helping to think like that is praise you, thank you. I behold something that is good and marvelous 
That's the work for yourself. That's the work for someone else. And incidentally, that's what makes a people an effective evangelistic entity. Because everybody in the world is in pursuit of joy. And constantly trying to find some ship of joy that won't sink. Hopping. And if they were to bump into you or into me or into us, a people that finds, yeah, all the same problems, but then lives in them with the joy that seems to be drawing fuel from somewhere else that isn't extinguished, what's going on here? It would cause them to ask some questions. And you'd have an answer for the reason of the hope that's in you. It's in Jesus, it's where it can be found. We should pursue it in Jesus persistently knowing that God wants to give it to us. I, I want this, my whole Christian life I've wanted this for myself. And I can't think of anything better for a church than to be a people who not, by, by no means, not sets aside obedience, sets aside the Bible, sets aside the gospel. No, 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 no. We, no, we, we, we embrace all those things. Those things are, are who we are. Those are, are beautiful. But we embrace all of them in joy because we see what they actually are about. Life for you that is certain. I want to be a, a part of a church that finds its joy in Jesus. And that does the work to keep finding its joy in Jesus. And then can commend that to other people who also are looking for joy and need Jesus. That's what we should be. I hope that God will use me here as a laborer in your midst for your joy and then that you likewise will be a laborer for me, for my joy, and that we all together can grow up into this. May God give us grace by his spirit towards that end to make us a people, a church that knows joy because of Jesus. Let me pray. God, help us with this, please. Help us to do the work, not just to know the theory, but to do the work of taking our thoughts captive. It is challenging. It is hard. So, Spirit of God, will you please help us individually, in in our families, and in our church family. Don't don't let us become kind of artificial in some way and put on a, a show, but produce something genuine that's deep in us, please. Satisfaction in Jesus that's contagious and real. We look to you for that thankful that you want to produce a people like that who are faithful and full of joy. So build us up in that, we ask.
pray this in Christ's name. It makes it all possible. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.